We are in Ephesians today, but we will also be hopping around to Mark chapter 1 briefly and then back to Ephesians. So if you want to find your place in Ephesians and maybe in Mark 1, otherwise scripture will be on the screen. We're going to move through several passages today as we look at God's word. But before we pray, I want this thought to be in your head. I read this uh, from a man in Papua New Guinea. Now, he did not put this on Twitter today, but somebody else put it on for him. Uh, but this believer in North Wagi said this, talking about the gospel, talking about God's word, breaking into his culture. He said, this talk is not like any other I have ever heard. It is so strong that I feel it cutting into me deep. That should be our approach as we come to God's words, who are our thoughts as we approach God's word every time. So let's pray that as we look at God's word, that as we study the deep things of God, that our hearts would be cut deep, deep, deep. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are, for your glory, your greatness, your mercy, that you are a fountain of living water and we can come to you and drink and find satisfaction. And we thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your spirit. God, would you change us? Would you open our eyes to understand what it means that there is one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit? And then that may that change the way we see you and change the way our relationships work. May you get great glory in our lives. May we be like this believer in Papua New Guinea. May we say that your word is cutting down deep into us, that this talk is changing us. Do it for our joy and do it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We saw last week that the most important thought that you will ever think is what you think when you think of God because it will determine every dimension of your life. Listen in and see how children's view of God, children's theology has determined how they pray. Here's some prayers from some children. Nan says this to the Lord. I bet it is very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world. There are only four people in our family and I can never do it. Marcia writes, praise to God. My brother told me about being born, but it doesn't sound right. Mickey D said, if you watch in church on Sunday, I will show you my new shoes. Another child said, we read Thomas Edison made lights, but in Sunday school, they said you did it. So I bet he stole your idea. <laughs> Sincerely, Donna. Charles said this, I do not think anybody could be a better God. Well, I just want you to know, but I am not just saying that because you are God. Eugene said this, I didn't think orange went with purple until I saw the sunset you made on Tuesday. That was cool. Anita says, is it true my father won't get in heaven if he uses his bowling words in the house? <laughs> Jane says, instead of letting people die and having to make new ones, why don't you just keep the ones you got now? Another Nan says this, who draws the lines around the countries? On a map, 
Darla says, did you really mean do unto others as they do unto you? Because if you did, then I'm going to fix my brother. (laughs) This is my favorite one. It rained for our whole vacation and is my father mad? He said some things about you that people are not supposed to say, but I hope you will not hurt him anyway. Your friend, but I'm not going to tell you who I am. Clearly, these children are a little naive in their understanding of God, even though it's very cute. But it is tragic if someone never moves beyond this understanding of God. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have to understand and believe rightly in the God that you are believing in, or you may not be believing in the true God, but rather a fabrication of your own mind. Our big idea today is this. To be a Christian, you have to be able to count to three. In order to be a Christian, a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have to be able to count to three. Now, I don't mean that that's how you become a Christian, one, two, three, and boom, you are a Christian. We know that a sinner must hear the gospel message. The Holy Spirit must regenerate them. There is repentance and there is trust in Jesus Christ. And then, yes, bam, just like that, you are born again. You are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of God's love, and you are born again. You are then adopted into God's family, and you are his child. Does that happen like that? Yes, but just counting one, two, three, doesn't make you a Christian. But to be a Christian, you have to be able to count to three. To be a Christian, you must start with the number one and you must end with the number three. We see both in our passage that James read earlier. So look with me at Ephesians chapter four. We'll look at verses four through six. Hear the words of the Trinitarian God that we serve. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Notice Paul says that there's one body, there's one church. There's one spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. There's one hope. We have one hope and it's in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his soon coming return. There's one Lord. When Paul says there's one Lord, he's referring to Jesus. He says there's one faith. There's one baptism. There's one God and father of all. So we see here the oneness in this passage of the triune God. Paul explicitly affirms that God is one. He's keeping with the teaching of the Old Testament, which affirmed the oneness of God. But he is also showing us that God is three because he mentions the Father, he mentions the Son, and he mentions the Spirit. This passage shows us that God is both one and three. One God eternally existing in three persons. So let's discuss here for a moment, the oneness of God. It's called monotheism. Mono means one, theos in Greek means God. So you get, put those together, you get monotheism, you get one God. How did the early church arrive at their understanding of the Trinity? The earliest believers we know were converts that came out of Judaism. 
they held a monotheistic view of God, that Yahweh was the one true God. This is what the Jews believed. So how did the early church get to a belief in a Trinitarian God? They started by maintaining their view of a monotheistic God, that there is one God. They continued to believe that God was one. They read the Old Testament scriptures, which affirmed the oneness of God, but the early church also believed that God was three. We see this clearly in Jesus' baptism. So turn to Mark chapter 1, if you're not there already, where we will see each person of the Trinity present at the baptism of Jesus. We'll see the Father, we'll see Jesus, because he's being baptized, and we'll see the Holy Spirit. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Each person of the Godhead is present here. Jesus is being baptized. The spirit is coming down like a dove, not a dove, but in the appearance, the way a dove would float down. And we have the father speaking from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Every member of the Godhead is present at the baptism of Jesus. Now, as you begin to start wearing your Trinitarian glasses, as we go through this series, you'll start reading the Bible and you'll see that the Trinity is all over. You'll be amazed. One of the, there are so many we could go into. Uh, we don't have time. Let's, let me read the, probably the most popular one that we go to when we talk about the Trinity. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. It says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So as you start thinking about this, you'll start reading and say, Oh, in that little paragraph there, God the Father's there, and the Son is there, and the Spirit is there. And you'll begin to see as you wear your Trinitarian glasses. Okay. So the early church had this monotheistic understanding of God, but they also had a Trinitarian understanding of God. And that creates mystery when you put them together. And we humans don't like mystery. We hate mystery. We can't handle that mystery. So what we do typically, and it's what's happened through church history, is we tend to swing to one side or the other. We tend to emphasize either the oneness of God, or we tend to emphasize the threeness of God. This happened throughout church history. But let me show you how Church history has always, we've had this monotheistic understanding of God and this Trinitarian nature of God. But let me show you one way in which the Trinitarian nature of God was, uh, there was an attempt to downplay that. So let's hop in a time machine with me and let's go back to the second century. One of the first heresies to crop up was called modalism. Okay, modalism is also known by other fancier names. If you read church history books, monarchianism. Patrapassianism, Sabellianism, Praxisism, words that you guys use every day in your life. So why all these names for modalism? One of my professors said it's so that theologians can, theologians can sleep better at night because they know all the names by which modalism is known. What is modalism? Let's define it here. Modalism teaches that the Father is fully God and the Son, Jesus Christ, is fully God and the Spirit is fully God. But God only manifests himself in each one of those modes 
at a time. Modalism teaches that God does not exist, eternally exist, as Father, Son, and Spirit simultaneously. Modalism says sometimes when God shows up, he's saying, hey, I'm the Father. And sometimes when God shows up, he says, hey, I'm the Son. And sometimes when he shows up, hey, I am the Spirit. Modalism says that God never exists simultaneously at the same time as Father, Son, and Spirit. So as church history began moving on, as time kept moving on, a false teaching called modalism popped up. And a man by the name of Tertullian, born in 160 AD, died in 220 AD, campaigned against this false teaching called modalism. And he did it in a book that he titled Against Praxius. Praxius was a modalist. Praxius believed that sometimes God was the Father, sometimes he was the Son, sometimes he was the Spirit. So Tertullian writes this book called Against Praxius. So he goes to the publisher and says, I have written a book. And they said, what's it about? Well, it's Against Praxius. What's the name of your book? Against Praxius? It goes against Puritan titles. I have to share this because I read this yesterday. I know Puritan titles. If you read any of the Puritans, you know their titles were long. But this was a, the title of a book that is so different than Against Praxius. It has nothing to do with our sermon, by the way. But I'm going to show you how long titles used to be how we've grown through church history. Richard Rogers had written a book in 1603, and this was the title, Seven Treatises Containing Such Directions as is Gathered Out of the Holy Scriptures, Leading and Guiding to True Happiness, Both in This Life and in the Life to Come, and May Be Called the Practice of Christianity, Profitable for All Such as Heartily Desire the Same, in the which, more particularly, true Christians may learn how to lead a godly and comfortable life every day. That was the title of the book. So Tertullian comes along and he writes a book called Against Praxius because Praxius believed in the oneness of God, but Praxius did not believe in the threeness of God. Praxius believed that God the Father became God the Son when Jesus died on the cross. That's modalism, believing that sometimes God is the Father and sometimes he's the Son and sometimes he is the Spirit. So Tertullian comes along and says, this doesn't sound right. And he writes a book called Against Praxius. But modalism is not just a thing of the past. Modalism is not something that is just relegated to the second century Modalism is alive and well today, and there are people that still cling to it. Sometimes, though, we can be modalistic in our prayers. Sometimes when we pray, we say things like, Thank you, Father, for dying on the cross for me. Now, we all know that God the Father did not die on the cross for us, did he? His son Jesus Christ did. So we have to be careful because even in our prayers, we can become modalists, thinking that God functions in one mode at a time. Now, thankfully, God doesn't sit up there and go, la, 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 you're acting like a modalist, not going to hear your prayer. But this is why we're doing this series, to teach you how do we pray as Christians who believe in a Trinitarian God. We must be careful even when we are praying. We pray to the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. We'll talk more about praying later on in this series. So, do we affirm the oneness of God here? Absolutely. But we do not affirm the oneness of God to the neglect of the threeness of God. 
What denomination today believes in modalism? It's the United Pentecostals. You can go on their website. They have like, I think it's like 60 questions about doctrine. They flat out deny the Trinity. United Pentecostals, they try to wiggle around Mark 1. They believe sometimes God's the Father, sometimes he's the Son, sometimes he's the Spirit. When they get to Mark 1, they're like, well, he was kind of all over the place. United Pentecostals affirm the oneness of God, but they deny the threeness of God. And there are many teachers out there today who do this. We do not believe that here. I think United Pentecostals are sadly deceived because to be a Christian, you have to be able to count to three. Is there one God? Yes, absolutely. And he exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. If you do not believe this, you cannot be a Christian. If you do not believe that there is one God eternally existent as three persons, you cannot be a Christian. Now, some of you are thinking, but sometimes when I share the gospel, I never even bring up the spirit. And these people become Christians and they've never heard of him. I'm not saying that you can share the gospel with someone and they don't understand the Trinity. I'm not saying that they're not Christian. I believe they are. But as they grow and understand, as you teach them, if they're confronted with the truth that there's one God eternally existed in three persons, if they say, I do not believe that, then I would say that they're in error. To be a Christian, you have to be able to count to three. Counting to one is not enough. This is what our doctrinal statement says here at Grace, section B, the Trinity. We believe that there is one living and true God eternally existing in three persons, that these are equal to every divine perfection and that they execute distinct but harmonious offices in the work of creation, providence, and redemption. To be a member of this church You have to believe that there is one God eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And to be a Christian, you have to believe this. To be a Christian, you have to be able to count to three. Praxius believed in the one God, but he did not believe that God was triune. So Tertullian wrote in his work against Praxius, Tertullian said this, In many ways has the devil rivaled truth. Sometimes his aim has been to destroy it by defending it. Okay, let me read that again. In many ways has the devil rivaled truth. Sometimes his aim has been to destroy truth by defending it. What does Tertullian mean? He means that you can be an enemy of the truth if you only seek to defend one aspect of it. If the truth is A and B and you only defend A and not B, then you are not defending the truth. Praxius was all for monotheism, one God, but he was not in favor of a triune understanding of God. If all you do is stress God's oneness, you are no different from Praxius or a Jew, or a Muslim. That's what Judaism and Islam stress. One God. However, Christianity is distinctively Trinitarian. So how in the world do we begin to understand that God is one and God is three? God has to open our eyes and give us the knowledge of that. Ephesians 1, Paul talks about that. 
about God, opening our eyes to understand and get that knowledge. But where do we get the knowledge so that we can understand? We get it from God's word, specifically as revealed to the apostles and the prophets in Holy Scripture. Here's what Paul says. If you're in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, otherwise the verses will be on the screen because we're going to fly through this. Notice the emphasis that Paul places on the testimony of the apostles and prophets as recorded in Scripture. Ephesians 2, 19 to 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So when it comes to understanding the Trinity, we are not called to try to figure it out like a math problem. We are called to believe the testimony of the apostles and prophets as recorded in Scripture. Paul continues in Ephesians 3, Verses 4 through 5. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Then in Ephesians 4.11, we know this verse, he gave the apostles and the prophets and so on to build up the church. Then Peter chimes in on this. In 2 Peter 3, Peter says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring you up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So what we are called to do in Scripture is not figure out the Trinity like some algebra equation, like some difficult math problem, but we are to believe what the scriptures say about the Trinity. We are called to believe, not to fully understand. By the way, whoever said that understanding God would be easy? And why do we assume that understanding God is hard and yet understanding the gospel is supposed to be easy. Is the gospel really easy to understand? That the sovereign God who created the universe, galaxies, the Milky Way, Saturn, Jupiter, the planet formerly known as Pluto, are we to believe? Is that easy to understand that the sovereign God who spoke this world into existence became a human being like us in a humble manner where he had to have his diaper changed and he sucks milk out of his mother's breasts and is dependent upon that milk to survive another day and he lives 33 years. He gets arrested and he gives no defense, no argument, no apology. He allows himself to be nailed to a cross. He didn't call on a myriad of angels who could have come to his defense and saved him. And he willingly under, he willingly dies. Is that easy to understand? Is that easy to comprehend? Does the gospel make sense to a rational mind? We think that God is hard to understand and the gospel somehow is easy. Really? The sovereign God becomes a baby and is dependent on his mother's milk? Understand this, Grace. Christianity is not about what makes sense. 
Christianity is not about what you can get your mind around. Christianity is not about what is reasonable. Christianity is not about what is sensible. As Martin Luther said, reason is a whore, the greatest enemy faith has. Reason is a whore and will sleep with anyone. Christianity is about faith. It's about believing the testimony of the apostles and prophets as recorded in Holy Scripture. The same God that can give you faith to believe the gospel message, to believe that Jesus went to the cross, died for you, and God raised him from the dead, is the same God that can give you faith to believe in the Trinity. You see, we live in a culture that says, don't believe anything unless it it is rational and sensible and logical and that it makes sense. So many people want to test Christianity by reason. However, the scriptures must test reason. Scripture must be elevated above reason. Some of you may say, how in the world do I explain the Trinity to a six-year-old? Tell me, Pastor, how in the world am I ever to explain the Trinity to a six-year-old? Let me ask you, how do you explain the Trinity to a 30-year-old? Is it any different? My first goal as a pastor and as a father is not to explain. My first goal is to summarize what the apostles and prophets have said about God in his word and then to plead with people to believe it. To plead with my wife to believe it. To plead with my children to believe it. To plead with you to believe it. Only after that is my goal to explain it the best way that I can. So how in the world do we explain the Trinity? One way we can do it, and let me suggest a great resource, is this book, Big Thoughts for Little Thinkers, on the Trinity. It's very concise. It's great. So parents, if you're looking for a book and you want to understand the Trinity, here's a great book. There's another book I put out there for you. You can look at both of them, Big Truths, um, by Bruce Ware. If you want to talk theology with your children, one's for very little kids, but you'll learn a lot from it, trust me. And one's, as you can read with your older kids, there's two books out here on, as you leave this way, you can look, sign up, we'll order. There's no sense all of us paying shipping and handling, so we'll do one big order. If you're interested, write your name if you want to teach your kids theology. So there's some resources for you. How in the world do we explain the Trinity? Let me tip you off ahead of time that I believe that all attempts at explaining the Trinity through analogies fall short and they should be avoided. Okay, we saw last week that God is of a divine nature, not an earthly nature, that he is unlike anything on this earth. So let's talk about some of those common analogies that we use to describe God. And let me tip you off ahead of time. I'm going to step on your toes, okay? I'm going to throw you under the bus, all right? But I'm going to step on my own toes and I'm going to throw myself under the bus, because we've probably all been here before. How do we typically try to explain the Trinity? Sometimes we say God in your pantry. 
God, in your cupboard, the pretzel. There are three parts and there's one piece. And so we say, God is like a pretzel. And I don't know what you do if you sprinkle salt on on top, if you throw mustard in there. But we look at the pretzel and we say, that's what God is like. We can do better than that, can't we? Or we do the God in your shower, the three-in-one shampoo, the shampoo, the shower gel, and the conditioner. We say God is like something that every day when you take a shower, you can look at it and say, oh, that's what God's like. We can do better than that, can't we? Here's one of our favorites, God in your kitchen, ice, water, steam. This is one of the more popular ones. Again, these don't exist simultaneously, which is exactly what the analogy wants you to believe. Then we have God in your fruit basket the apple. And I've seen books on this, the skin, the the meat of the apple, the core. Then we've got God in your chicken, the egg. Oh, we love this one, don't we? You've got the shell, you've got the yolk, you've got the egg white. I do not want to tell my kids, see the chicken? See the egg they produce? That's what God's like. We can do better than that. All right, I've stepped on your toes, okay? I understand. Let me step on mine. God in your iPod. ZZ Top. Three members, one group. That was my feeble attempt to try to understand and explain the Trinity in high school. Well, there's three members of the band and they're one group, so that kind of makes sense. All of these examples want to show us what God is like. So they begin with this phrase, God is like. Let me tell you something. Don't go there. Don't begin sentences by saying God is like and then pointing to something in creation. God is not like anything on the earth. All of these analogies at best are a form of modalism and at worst they are pagan. God is not like a pretzel. God is not like shampoo. God is not like water. God is not like an apple. And God is not like an egg. And God is certainly not like a pagan rock group from Texas, which is made up of two members who have extremely long beards and a drummer who has no beard, but whose name is Frank Beard. God is nothing like anything in his creation. He is holy. He is different. That's what holy means. He is set apart. God is in a whole other category. He is unlike anything that you have ever seen. He is not like an egg, an apple, a shampoo, pretzel, water, or a rock group. He is not like anything in this world. So how do the apostles and prophets describe God in Scripture? They don't mention eggs or apples, that's for sure. But so many of us cling to our beloved ideas of God. We love our analogies. Here's what Ralph Davis says. Do we worship our conceptions of God or God? God is free to be who he is or Do I make him my prisoner, subject to what I think he should be? A Christian must keep asking himself, am I worshiping the God of the Bible or only God as I think of him? What about when the Bible describes God using metaphor? When scripture describes God using metaphor, it is usually to describe his ethical character. When scripture compares God to a mother hen, 
Psalm 17, hide me in the shadow of your wings. It is communicating how God is in relationship with his people, in relationship with his children. And sometimes he's referred to as a judge or a shepherd. All of these metaphors are used to describe his ethical character. The problem happens when we take metaphysical things around us and try to explain God. What scripture does is assign God qualities like holy, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. God's nature, his divine nature is not like anything in this world. So what do we do? We say what scripture says and we be silent where scripture is silent. God could have given us an egg illustration in the Bible, but he didn't. Therefore, we need not describe God with creaturely things. He is not a creature. He is not a created being. He is the creator, and nothing on earth is similar to him. The best picture that we have at trying to understand the Trinity is this slide right here. The Father is God, but the Father is not the Son, and the Father is not the Spirit. The Son is God, but the Son is not the Father, and the Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is God, but the Spirit is not the Father, and the Spirit is not the Son. That's the best picture we have at trying to understand the Trinity. We have the three, and we have the one present. The Father is God. But he is not the Son, and he is not the Spirit. The Son is God, but he is not the Father or the Spirit. The Spirit is God, but he is not the Father or the Son. To be a Christian, you have to be able to count to three. One God, three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, eternally existing as the one God. So what are we to do if we don't quite get it? You believe the testimony of the apostles and prophets as recorded in God's word. And if we don't do that, then we will go wrong. As A.W. Tozer said, and we quoted this in our Ruth series, what comes into our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given moment may say or do, but what he in his heart conceives God to be like. Before the Christian church goes into eclipse anywhere, there must first be a corrupting of her simple, basic theology. She simply gets a wrong answer to the question, what is God like? And goes on from there. What we think of God determines everything in our life. So how should you think of God? How should you think of God being one but three? You can't go wrong memorizing and believing our doctrinal statement. We believe that there is one living and true God, eternally existing in three persons, that these are equal to every divine perfection and that they execute distinct but harmonious offices in the work of creation, providence, and redemption. To be a Christian you have to be able to count to three. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the testimony of the apostles and prophets who heard from you 
and wrote down what you wanted written down in your word, what you wanted revealed about yourself. May we be a church that doesn't try to figure you out with a blackboard and chalk. May we be a church that looks at your word and says, I may not get it, but I believe it. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.